So we continue this morning in our study of the book of Acts. We're going to be in Acts chapter 15. If you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bibles or on your phone or on your iPad or whatever form of electronic device, I can't remember. But we are going to be in Acts 15. Well, we have to set the stage because we've kind of been hopping around throughout the book. I kind of need to set the stage for you for what is going on here in Acts 15. It's a very well-known passage of Scripture. But starting all the way back in Acts chapter 9, we have the story of Saul being converted. He's heading towards Damascus, and Jesus meets him on the road, and he tells him, I want you to go, and I want you to be an apostle to the Gentiles. Now, Paul is a Jew by birth, right? He's a Pharisee. And God calls him to go to the Gentiles. That's key. The very next chapter in Acts chapter 10, Peter is up on the rooftop praying, and a sheet is dropped before him, and he has a vision. And all these different animals are on this sheet. And God tells him to kill those animals and eat them which wouldn't have been a problem except for the fact that Peter is also a Jew and he knows as a good Jewish boy that he is not to eat those things that were dropped on that sheet. And this is all part of the process in Acts chapter 10 where eventually Peter goes and he meets Cornelius who is a Gentile and he shares the gospel with him and Cornelius and his entire family is saved. So that's two occasions where Gentiles are a key part of the story. And then in Acts chapter 13, it's Saul and Barnabas who were called to go on the first missionary journey. And they go to Cyprus, and they go to Perga, and Pamphylia, and they circle back around, and they come back to Antioch. And when they finish that first missionary journey, most of the people who were coming to faith in Christ on that journey were Gentiles. So this is where the church is. When we get to Acts chapter 15, we have the Jewish believers in Christ trying to figure out how we are going to stay unified with all of these people who are Gentiles that are not like us. How are we going to remain unified and become one body? And this is where we are right now in Acts chapter 15. This is the solution that the church comes up with. Beginning in verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, that's a nice way of saying they got really ticked off. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them 
and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city Those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. The church was at a crossroads. They had to decide what they were going to do before they could move forward. So there's a number of truths that we can take away from this passage, but I want you to see three with me this morning. Number one, we have to understand very clearly that you and I are not the gatekeepers. The very first verse tells us that certain teachers from Judea came down to Antioch and they were telling Saul and Barnabas, this is what these folks need to do in order to be saved. That's very dangerous territory to get into. When you and I begin dictating to other people what it is that we think they need to do in order to be right with God. There's only one source that we go to in order to tell somebody what makes them right with God. And it is not us. It's God's word. The reality is, if we were to be honest with ourselves this morning, we all judge people. And we all create these artificial standards in our minds and in our hearts. We might not communicate them to anybody, but we all have certain things that we think, you know what, this is what makes this person saved. This is what makes this person saved. Certain beliefs, certain behaviors that we're looking for in an individual. And if we see those things, we say, I think that person is right with God. But the reality is, those are all standards that we create. 
Those don't always come from God's Word. And of course, God's Word is very clear about what salvation is. But we need to be reminded of Jesus' own words to us when he says we need to remove the log out of our own eye before we remove the speck from somebody else's. And that's what was going on here. These Jewish teachers were coming to Antioch and seeing all these people who were coming to faith in Christ and they were not like them. And you know what? This isn't even really about circumcision. That's just the excuse that they gave. What this is really about is about the established church wanting to retain whatever control they could to make sure that it stayed the way they wanted it to look. That's what was happening here. Circumcision and obeying the Mosaic law were just how it played itself out. What the Jewish people were really scared of was losing control of the church that they had been in charge of. For the first time, people were coming that were not like them. That came from different backgrounds, different belief systems, a different culture. And they thought, you know what, if we tell these people to become circumcised and to follow the Mosaic law, that'll make them look just like us. And that's what we wanted anyways. And then we see in verse 2 that Saul and Barnabas stand up and they say, I don't think so. We're not having this. We're taking this to the headquarters in Jerusalem and we're going to find out what the true solution is to this problem. So the application here for you and I and that the early church realized very, very quickly is that in order to reach people that you've never reached before, sometimes you have to be willing to do things that you've never done before. Luckily, James and the other leaders in the Jerusalem church were willing to say, you know what, circumcision is a big deal to us, but we understand that it's not a requirement for salvation. We understand that it's not what makes someone right with God. Those of us in here that grew up in church, we all have certain ways that we like church to be done. I want a certain temperature, I want the shades up, I want the shades down. I want this song, I want that song. I've been tithing at this church for 25 years, therefore my preferences and opinions matter than somebody who just come for the first time. I know none of us in here would actually say that, but I've heard of church people doing things like that before. But as soon as we make it about us, we are restricting the movement of the gospel. You see, when the mission of the church of Jesus Christ is your primary focus, all of the petty things that we used to care about, they don't matter anymore. Because what matters most is the mission of Jesus moving forward. So all of the things that we used to care about, they, they become irrelevant. And that's what the church realized in this passage. 
circumcision, the Mosaic law. Yeah, those were important at one time. But if we're going to continue to take the gospel all over the world, it can't matter anymore. So when we read this passage, we remember that we are not the gatekeepers. And we also remember the truth about what salvation really is. Because the most damaging aspect in this passage is that the Jews were saying, you have to do this in order to be saved. They were adding on elements to the gospel that were not there. Peter says, you're putting a yoke upon these people. Now a yoke with oxen and with horses is a wooden frame or a bar of wood that sits on their neck. And it causes them to work together and to work more efficiently. So if we're talking about yoke on oxen, that's a good thing. When we're talking about yoke put on human beings, that's a bad thing. Do you realize that every time yoke is used in the New Testament, it almost always carries with it a negative connotation it creates burdens and obligations and pressure on people that it shouldn't and Peter says you're putting this yoke upon our brothers and sisters in Christ that does not need to be there it's interesting only two times do we find yoke used in the New Testament that is carried with a positive connotation. Both of those occasions are when Jesus himself talks about it. He says, cast your yoke on me. He says, take my yoke upon you. We cannot carry the burden of this life alone. The reality is that these Gentiles who were coming from a different place, different standards of living, it was already hard enough that they chose to follow Christ. Now they're going to add all these extra rules on me in the process. The funniest thing about this passage is that Peter tells them you're putting the restrictions and the requirements on them that you couldn't keep yourself. They had forgotten that the entire story of the Old Testament is God giving the Mosaic Law, the Israelites failing at it miserably, God redeeming them, and then them failing again, and then God redeeming them. It's like they had amnesia and completely forgot that they themselves, the very Mosaic law that they were trying to make these Gentiles believe, they were awful at it too. They had forgotten the truth about what salvation is. I don't know where you are this morning in your relationship with Christ, but I can promise you this. If you were trying to achieve salvation you will never attain it 
I love what one Christian theologian said. He said, the Christian identity is not achieved, it's received. No good work will ever satisfy the requirement that God puts down for us. But you can receive it. You can take on Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the very one who fulfilled the law perfectly, who satisfied every requirement that God laid out when he died on the cross for us. But you can't achieve that. You receive it as a free gift. They needed to understand that. The Jews, the people who had the Holy Scriptures in front of them, they were the ones that needed to be reminded. So what yoke are you putting on yourself this morning? What pressure are you living under that you think is preventing me from being with God? You'll never achieve it. But you can have it. You can have it through Jesus Christ. And in the biggest part of this passage, what we see here is that the church, they learned how to honor and respect the differences between each other. So here's what's happening here. James gives out four recommendations that he wanted the Gentiles to adhere to. Okay, so James is saying, all right, we're not going to require you to be circumcised, but these are some things that we need you to do in order for us to be able to work together. So we have to understand that anytime decisions are made in the church, okay, it requires sometimes a give and a take. James is willing to say, circumcision, all right. But here's what we need you to do. Number one, we need you to avoid meat that has been polluted by idols. Number two, we need you to avoid sexual immorality. Number three, we need to ask you to avoid blood from strangled animals. And then number four, we need you to just stay away from blood in general. So why, why these requirements? Why are these things so important? The first one, meat was taken throughout the pagan world and it was set up as sacrifices to all these various gods in the different temples. And sometimes the leftover meat was brought back to the marketplace and could be sold to anybody. So what James is saying is, even though you're not participating in these temple worship sites anymore, the meat that you could be buying very well could be. And it's important enough, idolatry means enough to us as your Jewish brothers and sisters that we want you to avoid buying that meat. Number two, sexual immorality. If they're coming from a pagan or a Gentile background, they do not have the same understanding that Jews would have had regarding marriage, regarding one man and one woman. And so James is saying, if we're going to have fellowship together, we have to be on the same page in regard to our sexual ethic. Number three, there was a way to kill the animal where you strangled it and the blood remained in the animal. And you could eat the animal that way with the blood remains inside the animal still. That would have been a no-no for Jews. 
So James is saying, we'd appreciate it if you wouldn't strangle the animals and then eat them. I know that's gross, but it's reality. And then number four, you can go back and you can look all throughout Leviticus and Exodus and find all of the laws that talk about all the ways that a Jew could be contaminated by blood. So James is saying here, look, we're going to be working together going forward. We're going to have meals together. We're going to be praying together. These are some things that we need to be on the same page about. Those are the only four stipulations that James asks the Gentiles to adhere to. Now, I don't want to undersell here the importance of James and the other Jewish people saying that circumcision is not a big deal. Remember, all the way back in Genesis chapter 17, when God tells Abraham to be circumcised, it is the way that the Jewish people are set apart. It is their identity marker. No circumcision meant no covenant. No covenant meant no promise. No promise meant no nation. No nation meant no land. So for James and the leadership in Jerusalem to say, you know what, we're okay with you not being circumcised is a huge Give. And you know why it's so important? Is because in this moment, James and the other leaders in Jerusalem are beginning to realize that their identity is no longer in circumcision, but it is in Jesus Christ. They're realizing that in this passage. You know, I've, I've been thinking a lot about CJ lately. Yesterday, right in front of me, we buried him. We had people in this room for about four or five hours yesterday with a funeral, and then we had a meal afterwards. CJ was one of the most difficult kids that we ever worked with. Those of you that worked with him, I know you're smiling right now because you can agree with that. We started coaching him in football and baseball and basketball, Andrew and John Palmer, Bob Bryan, myself, a few others. And there were times when we had to physically restrain CJ from doing something that he would have regretted. I can remember one baseball game where he got hit by a pitch and started charging the mound with the bat. I can remember one vacation Bible school sitting right over there where we could not get him to sit still. And Andrew had to sit on top of him for 30 minutes until he could calm down. The very first year we took him to kids camp, I lost him for like 30 minutes on a college campus at night. I had no idea where he went. Luckily, Pastor David let me continue to work here. (laughs) But we found him. And you know, over time... God took this kid with anger issues and this rebellious attitude and he chiseled away at that heart of stone. And CJ prayed to receive Christ in this church. And he was baptized right over here. And as I was approaching this text this week and as I was getting ready for CJ's funeral yesterday, I began to think to myself, 
What if we as a church would have not honored and respected the differences between us? What if we would have said, this is too difficult? The gap between us, the behavior issues, what we expect, it's just not going to work out. CJ certainly could have said the same thing about us. But we made the decision as a church that these kids were worth it. And so even though we had our differences, even though we had things that we had to deal with through the process, God was faithful, as he always is. And yesterday we buried CJ, and his mother sat right here. And I have received message after message from Cassandra and from her family and from her friends, absolutely stunned that this church would open its doors to CJ. And I think to myself, why is that stunning? This is the body of Christ. We have to honor and respect the differences between us. We have to understand that in order for the church of Jesus Christ to move forward, sometimes it requires some give and take. Not on on the biblical issues, not on the essentials, but on secondary issues. If this is not resolved in Acts chapter 15, if they don't come to a conclusion that we are going to be able to work together, the church of Jesus Christ would have stopped growing. Do not miss the significance of what happens here. If Saul and Barnabas and James and the leadership cannot come to an agreement, the book of Acts could have stopped at the end of Acts 15. We would have had no Philippi, no Ephesus, no Athens, no Corinth, no Thessalonica, no Berea. All of the places that Paul goes to could have been stopped if the church didn't decide that the mission is more important than these petty issues between us. And the church of Jesus Christ was never the same because this decision was made in Acts 15. So what do we do with it? The church of Jesus Christ is growing around the world I told you just a few weeks ago, four out of ten believers in Jesus Christ are from sub-Saharan Africa. God is blowing up in China, all across Africa, South America. So the church is still expanding. So what does this passage have to do with us? So I leave you with three questions. And I want you to write these questions down. These are not something that I'm mentioning in passing. I want you to take them seriously. I want you to process them. I want you to pray over it. And see how God speaks to you. Because this could very much shape the future and direction of this church. 
Number one, is there anything in our own congregation that is holding us back from a massive movement of God working in our city, in our church, in our state? Number two, what stipulations or or parameters are we as individuals putting on people that are not essential, that's making us less effective in reaching our community? And then number three, is there any cultural difference that you see between you and another brother or sister in Christ that's preventing you from having fellowship with somebody that you know you should? We have to answer these questions honestly. We have to ask God to search our hearts. Because if we do not remain unified as a body, God will not work among us. You know, we're, we're entering a very important time in our church. Today, in fact, is a very important day. Because when we leave here, we're getting ready to go and make nominations for those that will be a part of the pastor search committee. And you know what? It's going to require some give and take. It's going to require maybe some of us setting aside our own personal preferences and opinions and agendas of what we want to see get done. But we have to remember, just like when we look here, that it is not about us. It is about what God wants to accomplish through us. And God has the very person that he wants in this position. But it might not be who we or you as an individual were hoping for. But we've got to remain unified. We've got to keep the mission of Jesus Christ as the most important thing. And allow the secondary and the cultural differences between us fall to the wayside. We were willing to do that with CJ and with other people. We've got to continue to do it together as a church as we move forward. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this passage. God, the cooperation that we see between James and the leadership in Jerusalem and the Gentiles, God, I pray that you would continue to help us to meditate and focus on this passage. Lord, this is not about us. Forgive us when we make it about us. Humble us. Keep us focused on you and your mission to reach this community and reach the world with the good news of Jesus. So God, we're going to let the text, and we're going to let your spirit speak to us now. Show us 
how we can learn from this, how we can grow, how we can love our brothers and sisters who are different than us better. We love you, Jesus. Speak to us now. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.